Thank you very much. We're now going to go into interactive exchange. Um, if you'd like to ask the questions of panelists, if you could put your hands up and say your affiliation, your name, your affiliation, and who exactly on the panel you'd like to direct your question to. Any takers? Sorry, the lady. Hi, um, my name is Judy Hershon. I'm delighted to be here. And Agoji, um, I Googled you. I was very, really wondering who you were and what, what you're all about because there's nothing on here that tells me about you. And so I Googled you. And I'm sorry that all your credentials weren't listed because it's a very impressive resume, to say the least. Um, it seems to me there's a perfect storm right now. And um, I'd like the comments of the panel. Um, I have a, basically a fear of the UN. To me, the UN has been uh, uh, the antithesis on too many occasions of what it was supposed to be. It seems like institutional anti-Semitism. Um, and it's always um, encouraging to come to the UN and hear a panel such as today, but in too many instances, um, I don't feel the UN is living out its promise. And um, I would like to have heard a little bit more. I'm disappointed that we don't have anyone from the Muslim community on the panel to talk about um, the anti-Semitism, which is so problematic in the, the Islamic world. Um, and it seems this, uh, there's a combination of what's going on on the university campus. There's a rewriting of history. There's an agenda of equating Islamophobia with anti-Semitism, which makes it pretty much impossible to discuss um, some of the problems within um, extremist Islam. And um, also the replacement theology doctrine, which has made enormous inroads in the evangelical community. And furthermore, um, the wiping out of the Christian populations, which was referred to, that is being committed, uh, um, especially in Africa, Nigeria, et cetera, and yet the anti-Semitism is on the rise. Um, so maybe, I don't know exactly who to address on these issues, but um, I think, um, like to respond. Dr. Charles Small would like to comment on that, then um, Laurie. Thank you for your, your question and comments. So I, I would say um, briefly that your comments about the United Nations, unfortunately, I think is true. Um, in many cases, I think they, they're exacerbating, the UN institutions are exacerbating uh, the problems, particularly in the Middle East, the focus on, on Israel while the region currently is in flames. Um, I just returned from Rwanda where we had a memorial service two weeks ago on the U in the UN compound where the UN pulled out and as the soldiers left, uh, soldiers from Belgium and Ghana left, the soldiers were looking in the rear view mirror as the massacre took place. Only 100 people survived from the former UN compound. About 4,800 people were slaughtered. Um, and of course, if the UN would have responded adequately, there would have been perhaps 
the whole thing, the whole genocide potentially could have been prevented or certainly uh, curtailed. And one of the lessons that we've learned with incitement and in the case of Rwanda and Darfur, and, uh, which is ongoing for, for so many years, is that the, the, the laws uh, governing the international community with incitement, we have to act when, when people begin to incite against a group, in this case radical political Islam's overt and, and continuous uh, incitement against the Jewish people in Israel to liquidate and exterminate six million Jews in the Middle East. And as Ms. Cardoza Moore w was saying, that, that this incitement is ongoing. Um, we, when, when the genocide begins, it's too late. It's too late. Once the Doctors Without Borders and the policymakers and the UN responds to the crisis, it's too late. We see the crisis happening today. The radical political Islamists are open and obvious about their worldview and their, their political agenda and their military agenda. Israel is the only other, the only non-Muslim country in the region in which non-Muslims have self-determination. And that's the problem. As the Islamists gain in strength in more and more societies, it's not possible for them to recognize another group that has sovereignty over land. And the Jews are the only people with sovereignty other than Muslims. Even though they have one 840th of the territory of the Middle East, a tiny portion of the territory, even if it was just Tel Aviv in which Jews had self-determination, it would be religiously and politically impossible for this reactionary social movement to accept it. So it's not a question of the boundaries. We were, uh, Cardoza Moore, Ms. Cardoza Moore was speaking about the protocols of the elders of Zion. If you look at Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Islamic Jihad, even the Muslim Brotherhood, they've taken the most pernicious forms of European anti-Semitism, namely the protocols of the elders of Zion, and in the name of ridding the region of all foreigners of Jews and communists and capitalists and Christians, they've infused the protocols in their mainstream theology. And this is very, very dangerous. So the word, I think, that has to go out in the corridors of the United Nations is, if we're serious about dealing with incitement, if we're serious about saying never again, even if it's not within nation's self-interests, short-term self-interest, surely it's in all of our long-term interests to stop this overt genocidal movement. And as I said in my remarks, this reactionary social movement is almost the shock troops for the West. We see it in the West. Our scholars on our campuses, the best minds in the, in, in the Western world, in Europe and North America, we see this. And yet, as Sammy Apple was saying, there's this bizarre coalition between what I call it the Red-Green Alliance, the extreme left, the postmodernists, and the extreme Islamists. And we see this marching forward. They're gaining power. They're taking over institutions. They're taking over societies. When will the UN and, and Western countries put their short-term self-interests on hold and take a longer view of, of, the, of peace and security for the international community? Can I add something to it? Judy, I'd like to add something to, to what Charles just said. We have to remember that the first modern genocide was against Christians, was the Armenian 
genocide, okay? Close to two million people were killed, half a million were children, okay? And, and this was, why was a genocide? Because it was organized as such. The government of Turkey at that time actually organized a genocide. It wasn't just, you know, some people running around killing people. No, no, this was organized by a country. So this is the first genocide. And on the, on the uh, subject of the, of the protocols, uh, we should say that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is the second most printed book in the Arab world after the Quran. So it's actually official literature for their schools, for their people, for everybody. That's why we see it in Latin America now. They, when they come to Latin America, they bring it with them. Okay? I, I, nev I never even heard of the protocols before 15 years ago. They, they, you couldn't find a copy of that in, in Latin America. Now they're all over the place. Now who brought that in, in Latin America? The ones are actually printing it freely all over the place. Thank you. Did I say something, Laurie? Thank you. And I want to just hit on a couple of points that you brought up about anti-Semitism and the Muslim world and not having Muslim participants. We, Agoji and I, are talking about how we can strategically dissect this entity and take this message and expand it. But first, we feel like we have to compartmentalize our message to a strategic audience. And that's why we targeted the Latin American countries, Spain and Portugal, because these are Christian countries. We are people, we are women of faith. And as women of faith, we understand that unless we reach and appeal people, appeal to people from a place of faith, especially Christians, if they knew their Bible, it's like what Monsignor said earlier. He was shocked at how Catholics don't, they're not educated on this issue. They're not taught this. I wasn't taught this growing up. I heard all the, the protocols, um, innuendo comments, didn't know that it came out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, but I heard the rhetoric about the Jews growing up. So I know that it's a problem. And the reason why we established our organization was to target Christians, because Christians make up the largest number of people on the planet. And if we can reach Christians globally with this message and give them the biblical foundation to remind them and then put holy fear in them and say, look, you know, biblically, you're supposed to adhere to these scriptures. And of course, being Catholic or being Protestant of the Protestant faith, if we adhere to the word of God, we can't work in opposition. So to answer your question, that's why we don't have the Muslim community presented here. However, that is, a, that is going to be um, an ultimate agenda, is to go into the Arab-speaking world, find the Arabs who disagree with this, because they're out there. There are Muslims who disagree with this, this rhetoric and this mindset. So, you know, it's slowly, slowly, piece by piece, we're working on it. Replacement theology is a major problem within Christianity. Be, and it's, it's a result of the fact that Christians don't know their Bible. They go to church on Sunday, they hear the sermon preached, and most pastors never even talk about, about anti-Semitism, about their Jewish brethren. They barely even crack open the Old Testament. You have, you know, a Bible. Let's say it's a thousand pages, you know, thick. And most Christians start at page 800 of the Bible and read to the end. They never go back to the foundation. So that's a whole other problem. Um, the slaughter of Christians. You're absolutely right. Christians are being slaughtered everywhere, but it, it makes our, 
we made the point earlier that it's not just Jews that they come after. They come after Christians too. And the only way we're going to address this problem is to deal with the canary in the coal mine. We can't try to put a Band-Aid on trying to stop the Christian slaughter because really, if you think about it, Christians are tied to the people of the book. You know, the Saturday people and the Sunday people, the pigs and the apes, great Satan and little Satan, we're always lumped together. The target is always the same. It's the people of the book. But if we can focus on the Jewish people and get Christians to understand the role we play today, because think about it, Christians were born in this generation when God promised the prophet, told the prophet Isaiah that he would rebuild, he would reestablish his nation and he would put his people back in that land. And we happened to be alive when that prophecy was fulfilled. The Bible is clear. To whom much is given, much is required. There is much required of us of this generation, a people of faith, a people of conscience, and they're out there. But we have to remember it is the Jews that are the canary in the coal mine. And if a society is willing to annihilate the Jewish people, they will go after everybody else next. I, I have to agree and disagree with Lori. Number one, I, I, I cringe when I hear the word Christian nation. Uh, and the reason why I'm going to say that is I think, uh, which I tried to make clear when I was speaking, religious voices, we, have, we are living in a very secular time. So there's secularism what in with in whatever that means, okay? The new generation, I'm not talking about people my age or your age. I'm talking about people in, in their 30s, 40s, 20s. Many of, many of our experiences that wherever they are from, the religious voice or religious traditions from which their respective families may have come is waning. They're not even having their children raised in these traditions, etc. They see a world that is much bigger, and they are seeing and seeking their communities in so many other places. Now, the other area is we can be speaking in the religious communities to the choir, you know, the people who are in the pews. It's not those people many times who are the problems. Your problems are the people who aren't there. Now, this idea of a Christian nation, I, I don't think that such a thing exists. I, I think in the Middle Ages it may have existed. I, I think at the present moment it's a matter of one's affiliation to one's tradition, whatever that group is. But I could tell you what I think is stronger than one's religious background, and that is one's ethnic background. And the question of what we get in those traditions, particularly in different places, I think some of the anti-Semitism we're getting is seeped through culturally. Culturally. And it's very difficult to address that. If, it, if this is coming, and I think it is in many ways from the radical Islam, it's very interesting that those are the people we need to sit down and speak with who have a difficult time speaking with us. Very frequently when you put religion into the mix, 
reason seems to go out the window and emotion seems to charge the issue. With regard to, you know, dealing with uh, the, religious, uh, the, the, the religious Jewish issue, Certainly, as a clergy person, I would like you all to go to synagogue, like you all to go to church, like you all to do these things. I cannot dictate to the Jewish people how you should be Jewish. You know, do you have to be religious to be Jewish? Do you have to believe in God to be Jewish? Do you have to do all of these things to be Jewish? The answer is no. But you are Jewish. So whether you are religious or not, anti-Semitism against you is wrong because you are a person. You are a person. Christianity is a religious perspective. They have to at least believe in God. You are born Jewish, you're not born Christian. Jewishness or Judaism is everything. It's a religious perspective, it's a culture, it's a tradition, it's a peoplehood. It's a way of thinking, you know, and whether it is God-centered or culturally centered, I can't dictate how you should be Jewish. But I can condemn any form of anti-Semitism against anyone who is Jewish, or for that matter, for anyone who is being persecuted because of who they are, what they are, and from whence they come, simply on the basis that you are human. My theological reasons for doing that may be very different from your theological or lack of theological reasons for seeing who you are. Is it, am I making myself clear here in that sense? Storm, this perfect storm yeah, of an inability to have a conversation about radical Islam. Right. Um, I, I was looking a little more for comment about that, that because on the campus um, where it's, it's so problematic, uh, an interfaith um, dialogue, it's extremely problematic. There's a rewriting of history. There's an inability to um, address the issues because if you, if you talk about that, then you're, you're, um, you're accused of Islamophobia. Right. Which is an incredibly different agenda or uh, situation than anti-Semitism. And when there's a confluence of these things um, with this genocidal uh, movement against Christians, yet the anti-Semitism is what's on the rise, um, it, it's, it goes beyond any rational uh, ability to... That's right. To, I think to, uh, that's the issue, beyond rational. Beyond rational. So where do you go with that is, is a question that I think we're facing. Even if you want to say, can we sit down and talk about this from a, an intellectual perspective? You know? Oh. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm you I am with the Joint Media News Service. I wonder if anyone's approached the uh, Imam of Bosnia, who in these halls spoke once about um, his extraordinary exposure to Jewish assistance vis-a-vis vis Israelis, who basically saved his life. 
he, as a result of this, became rather a Holocaust scholar and is very knowledgeable, has the largest um, library of Holocaust publications and, and material in, in the Eastern European world. Has anyone made an approach to people in the Muslim world, and how do you make that approach to people in the Muslim world? There is a scholar in, uh, in Oxford who is uh, very much involved with, with uh, the peace movement. I think you know him, Charles, uh, Sheikh Rousey. There are others in the Muslim world who have been involved in, in the peace and tolerance, in the search for peace and tolerance, uh, who should be here and who probably would be here if they knew of this conference, um, and who are fearful in their own societies for their statements. How do you overcome the lack of their presence here? How do you make each of them safe within the bounds of his, his or her own person? And what's the next step to progress a meeting of like-minded people who are here to those who are not so like-minded? So, so you want um, if, if I could answer that question, I've actually worked with, um, um, as you say, people in the Muslim world. I've worked with Muslim women. Um, Laurie was actually on a panel discussion I held last year on the Arab Spring. It was, the title had to change the role of women in emerging democracy. I, have, I do work in the Muslim community, and they are willing to speak. But there's, there's one fear I have to point out to you. Yes, if you invite um, some imams here, they feel quite threatened in, to some respect because they would love to come in and have a conversation with you, but they, they feel to themselves, what will their community think? Mm -hmm. You know, if they're sitting down here and, and speaking. There, there are quite a few imams who are quite enlightened. I hosted an event two years ago, actually in the 96th Street Mosque, where the, the late Palestinian mosque, um, imam who was there, he welcomed Muslim women and Muslim and Jewish women into the into the mosque. You know, we do try to reach out, and I am trying to sort of create a dialogue between the Jewish and the Muslim community. Um, I would like to add. Um, I think it's very important to remember that the the largest victims, the greatest victim of radical political Islam and this anti-Semitic social movement, are Muslims, and that cannot be lost. And I don't call it the Arab Spring, I call it the Islamic Winter. <laughs> and this is what this social movement coming into power is an Islamist winter. Scholars, I work with scholars, people like Haris Rafiq, Bassam Tibi, who are extraordinarily outspoken about anti-Semitism. Bassam Tibi just wrote a book called Islamism and Anti-Semitism. Haris Rafiq works with the uh, British Prime Minister and the government on advising them on issues such as this, and they claim that the silence of the human rights community and the silence of those who care about radical political Islam's anti-Semitism is destroying their societies. Moderate, decent people in Pakistan, in Iraq, in other Islamic countries are being decimated and taken over by Islamists. So our silence in the West, our liberal silence people who are concerned on university campuses with uh, Islamophobia and not anti-Semitism, 
people like Bassam Tibi, Haris Rafiq, and many, many other scholars and religious leaders are, are outraged at this silence because their societies are being hijacked. Can I ask about the Muslim uh, situation? Uh, last year, we had the fourth uh, uh, a global forum to combat anti-Semitism in Jerusalem. And uh, some uh, uh, Muslims were invited. Uh, there was actually the Imam Sahid from Birmingham, is, he also one of the largest mosques over there. When he actually went up to speak, he, he said, hey, listen, I came here to learn from you. And on that uh, table outside, you have a lot of literature that, that is, is going to be very helpful to me. And he held this one up, to my surprise, which is, which is a, a fact book on Israel, that, that we publish, you know, for students. And actually, I went up to talk to him afterwards, and I've been talking with him uh, via email. Uh, basically, his wife is the one that handles the emails. And, 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 and he's actually willing to receive a number of these, thousands of these ones, to actually give them out in his mosque. Now, I would say he would do that at his own peril. I mean, that would be very dangerous for him to do that, you know. To, to do something that for some people look like propaganda for Israel, but it's actually a fact book, and it's actually good. So the fact that uh, some uh, religious Muslims are willing to take this risk, it's a sign of hope, and, 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 and really we should, we should take him up on that. So I'm, I'm already talking to, to some people in the CST in, in England to have this little booklet printed in England for... This imam, if he wants to give it up, well, that's wonderful. Excuse me, Excellency, would you like to... Thank you. Um, okay. Gloria Landy, World Council, Conservative Masorti Synagogues. My question... Is, you didn't call on me. I'm so sorry. So sorry. Go ahead. I'll go next. I will go after you. All right. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. I have two questions. And one, the first question I'd like to direct to Dr. Small, and the second question to Monsignor. Uh, during the uh, General Assembly, I saw, I mean, I can understand non-Jews um, having difficulties with being anti-Semitic or, or anti-Israel. But during the General Assembly, I saw a group of uh, Jewish people on the other side that were shouting anti-Israel slogans. And I couldn't understand that. Could you comment on that? So that's number one. And then to the Monsignor. Could you just explain the Catholic faith? Because um, I'm Protestant and I'm not Jewish, but I love, I love Israel. And the only reason why I do that is because I, I understand from the Bible what my brother from Colombia had just uh, talked about in his, that we trace our belief to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is the patriarchal um, 
parents of the nation of Israel. So if we believe in this God who is the God of Abraham and Jacob and Israel and, and Isaac, we could not possibly go against Israel because he's, he's their God. So my question to you is, do the Catholics believe that way too? Thank you. Uh, yes, we do. And I, and I think uh, Lori has, was also quoting very well there. Yes, it's a continuous, it, we, we see it theologically as a, con, a continuation, that we enter this covenant, the Gentile world, that's us, enters the covenant through Jesus, and so it's this one covenant in the word of God. So the answer to the question is, is yes. I, I didn't mean to, to come and answer the question before. I'm sorry about that. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, so in response to your question, I'd say very briefly, if they came to the United Nations to protest, they must have been uh, quite enthusiastic about their notion of Israel. So I, I would say, I don't, I don't know if there was a small religious group or a secular group, but there, are, there is a small group of uh, Hasidic Jews, a tiny, tiny group, that believes that the state of Israel should only have been... Uh, um, created after the Messiah comes to to this world, so they feel they're anti-Zionist and they they're waiting for the Messiah. Some of this group I have actually met. I met at Durban two in Geneva at the, at the UN two thousand and nine, and some of them are literally working with the Iranian regime. Um, and I studied uh, seriously uh, for many years with a, a rabbi in Montreal and in Israel. And I know my uh, Torah well. And I was speaking to them and asking them for sort of a religious explanation of why they were taking this political position. And to my dismay, they were not grounded in Torah thought. They were giving me sort of sociological and political answers, which was a shock. So that's some of this group. And then, of course, there are people, sort of the postmodern progressive people who are condemning Israel at every opportunity they have while they remain silent on the rise of radical political Islam. So it's politically incorrect to be uh, critical of this reactionary social movement. And I think that goes in part, it's a, it, it's a complicated issue, but I think in part it goes to self-hatred. That if you live in a society, I guess the most pernicious form of racism with an S, different forms of discrimination, is when people begin to internalize the hate and they turn on their own group. And that's a, it's a tragic uh, situation, and I think we're seeing that to some extent. It doesn't explain everything, not all the criticism of Israel, but a part of it. Hi, um, my name is Shireen Grimazian. I'm a reporter with the Algaminer. My question is for Dr. Small. Um, you said earlier that genocide occurs when ideas and words are used to dehumanize. In relation to that, do you think current efforts made around the world to dehumanize Jews are vigorous enough to lead to another Holocaust, if not stopped? Uh, so thank you for your question. Um, yes, unfortunately. Radical political Islamists, uh, when Kawadari came, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood came out of exile to Egypt and held Friday afternoon prayers in the, in the square, the main square in Cairo, and there were a million people in the square who heard him, he was literally calling Jews dogs and pigs that need to be removed. 
And, and the audience, it was sort of like being in synagogue. Everybody was kind of talking with each other. And when he started to rant against the Zionists and the Jews, the crowd erupted and listened to his words very intently. The Iranian revolutionary regime, as we speak, are intent on building a nuclear weapon to use it. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the supreme leader of the revolutionary regime, on November the 19th, 18 hours before the five countries plus one, the five countries uh, negotiating with uh, the regime, 18 hours before the negotiations were going to start, he called the Jews, not just Israel, but the Jews, rabid dogs, th that Judaism is a stain on the garment of, the, of the garment of Islam that it needs to be wiped out and eradicated. So here is a person, a leader of the, the supreme leader, the leader of the regime, who is literally calling for the extermination of Jews. And the six countries engaged, engaged, this is the word, that, this is the buzzword of our day, engaged in negotiations, engaged in the Islamic world, remain silent. And when countries are pushing Israel, I'll just be quickly, quick, they're pushing Israel to negotiate a peaceful settlement, and I hope there will be a peaceful settlement one day, in the region, and I, I believe the only way to do it is a two-state solution, and it's a sacrifice that the uh, Israelis, I think, ought to make if the situation uh, presents itself in a rational way where that, that there is a partner for peace. But the PLO, Fatah, and Hamas just made an agreement. The constitution of Hamas, the, and these are two organizations that come out of the Muslim Brotherhood, they're very clear. They've been clear for over 100 years that they want to exterminate, eradicate the state of Israel. They're clear. They're open and honest. And I urge people, go and read the founding fathers of this movement, uh, you know, Qutub and Albanai, and all these people, they're very clear. And so, yes, if Israel lets down its guard, if these people get their way, yes, they're clear about wiping Israel off the map. They see it as a foreign entity. They can't accept that that land is being governed by a people that have self-determination and that they're equal to Muslims. How do you think anti-Semitism is different now than it was during the Holocaust? So it's a good question. So I think the major difference is the, the demonization and delegitimization of Israel. The notion um, as was discussed earlier, that the Jewish people, we, we believe in a notion of peoplehood, that we're not just a religion, we're not just a culture, but we're a people, we're a nation. And there is an attempt to delegitimize and demonize our, our right, our, our right to self-determination in the region. And what's different, I guess, today is that this is the target, the main target of anti-Semites, the peoplehood. So it used to be the religion. There's still religious big bigotry. It used to be biological forms of racism. There's still anti-Semites, as we saw in Kansas City, that, uh, you know, white supremacists who kill Jews or want to kill Jews. That's also a lair. But the dominant force is the, the denial of Jewish peoplehood and trying to delegitimize Israel. And many people in the West think that's a problem of the Middle East or that's a problem of the Israelis. There's even Jewish leaders who are quiet when it comes to this issue, never mind the human rights community. But we can see last Thursday at NYU, just you know, up the street, um, 
progressive, in quotation, human rights activists were slipping eviction notices under the door of students in a dormitory that's known to be uh, housing predominantly Jewish students because there's a Shabbat elevator in the dormitory. And we see on campuses throughout Europe and North America, Jewish children who go to Hillel's or Chabad houses or Jewish organizations on campus are now being targeted because if the human rights progressive community, in quotations, sees Israel as an apartheid, uh, and, and that word is being used in connection with Israel today in the global media, as a world leader made that association, and regardless of his qualifiers, it is an abomination on Yom HaShoah, on Yom HaShoah, that a leader of the Western world made that association. It's, it's an abomination. And so the, 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 the demonization of Israel, if Israel's an apartheid, racist, colonial, Nazi regime entity in the Middle East, and then kids are going to organizations and cultural institutions that are, have an affinity to that entity, then now they're, they're going to be targeted on campus. And we're seeing that more and more. And it's not just in the corridors. It's in the curriculum. The, the educational system, the sort of postmodern... Uh, cultural relativist moment where there's no truth, where there's no good, where there's no evil. Every narrative is acceptable, even if it's genocidal. This is the, the, the most important element of uh, the social sciences today at the finest institutions. So there's no, there's no uh, resistance, if you will, to this reactionary social movement, even in Western institutions. And it's very dangerous. And I think as the incitement grows... You know, we need to, to, to intervene now, not when we need medics and uh, emergency uh, blue berets to show up. We have to do, deal with it now. Thank you. I want to just add to that also um, what Dr. Small was saying. We are witnessing a rise of anti-Semitism, unlike what we saw. It's similar to what we saw in Nazi Germany where in Nazi Germany it was anti-Jewish, but this time it is anti-Israel and anti-Zionist as well. Its goal is the same, to delegitimize Israel's right to exist, ultimately to dehumanize the Jewish people and discourage them. Um, we just had a, a battle in Tennessee because of textbooks that are starting. These are high school textbooks that are being used in counties across the country, not just in Tennessee where they're promoting anti-Semitic statements, legitimizing killing Israeli teenagers in a Jerusalem restaurant because of Israeli government policies. So we are seeing now an infiltration even into the United States, into our school system. So we have a major issue to confront across the country. And fortunately, there were people, parents, who once they were made aware, rose up and demanded that those textbooks be removed, and we actually were able to change legislation in Tennessee to protect our children from that type of inaccurate, biased information in our textbooks. It was a Pearson published textbook. And Pearson Publishers. Yes, they're, they're based out of London, England, and 60% um, of their sales come out of the United States. Hi, my name is Cheryl Rosenberg from Be Counted for Israel. Um, I've given anti-Semitism a lot of thought. I've done a lot of reading about it. I've experienced it. And 
I just wanted to make people aware that the Talmud, the greatest collection of Jewish work, asks the same question. Where does anti-Semitism come from? And in Tractate Shabbos 69, it says, it emanates, the hatred, the severe hatred against the Jews emanates from Sinai. And what happened on Sinai was that the Jews were given the Ten Commandments, the Bible. And what is the Bible? It's a blueprint for living, a moral life. And I'm just wondering, as I'm sitting here listening to these wonderful speakers today and everyone's great questions, is although many people here, probably most of us, agree that anti-Semitism becomes anti-humanism, anti-humanity, maybe what we should be looking at is how we can parlay the word anti-Semitism into anti-morality, because that's really what it's all about. The people that are anti-Semitic don't have a sense of morality. They want the shackles of a conscience to be loosened. They don't want to have any conscience about what they want to do. And so if you try to get people all together who want to live a moral life, maybe that's the way to go. Any thoughts? In my comments, I spoke about that issue about Hitler, mm -hmm. that Hitler's goal was to attack monotheism ultimately, and that is the ultimate goal. And as you go back through the, the scriptures, the text of scriptures, you always see that thread. That's why the people of the book are always targeted. But I think I would love to hear from Pastor Castro and from Monsignor um, as well. Can somebody else? I, I, I could. I, I could. Right, could we just take another question? Oh, sure. Okay. Thank you, Lori. Okay. You got it now? Okay. First, I want to thank Lori for uh, putting this program together. I think uh, it's invaluable. Uh, I wish I felt more confident about uh, the future of solving the problem particularly considering the building we're in and the performance by the United Nations so far. But nevertheless, I think um, the panel you've put together, the remarks that we have been hearing are very important and very valuable for not only the learning process, but also for us to think about where we're going with this whole problem of anti-Semitism. I learned a couple of things from my friend Dr. Small today, um, which I'm focusing on very seriously. One is, and I think you described it very well, the three stages we went through to get to this one we're now in terms of how uh, anti-Semitism is coming about in the modern era and the most recent, and at least uh, during this part of my lifetime, and more important, uh, the next generation and what they're going to have to face. And the second point he made, which I think is very important, is... Um, that we have to act before the action takes place, which requires our action, so that we have to plan how to solve the problem. On the first level, it's important to me now to point out again that what we're dealing with, in my judgment, is not, uh, maybe the terminology should be changed, is that we're really talking about anti-Zionism, that it's now, in the modern age, really rooted 
in end times. This is no longer a matter of you kill, kill Christ, we'll punish you. That's behind us. Largely because the church has gone through a reformation. And that takes me to where we are with the Muslim community. I don't think it's a religion. I don't think it can be discussed in terms of how Christianity functions and the basis of Christianity and how Judaism functions and what the basis of the understanding of the Jewish life is. It's a political system. It's a political way of life. I never remember hearing in any of the addresses I've heard from rabbis on Saturday when I go to synagogue to talk about that I must live, I must live in the United States identified with Jewish law. I've always been taught that even the Bible tells us when King David was king, God said, in effect, you have to identify with the laws of the land you live in. And that's what we do. However, I put to you the fact that when a Muslim moves to Holland, he's not moving to Holland to become a Dutchman. He's moving to Holland to make Holland become Muslim. When my father came to this country in 1914, by the way, as a stowaway on a ship, he came to this land because he wanted to be an American. He thought this was going to be the place he could make a home and a family. And that was the view of the people who came from Eastern Europe and for, from uh, all of the countries in the early part of the 20th century. So I think the solution, if I, anything I say makes any sense at all, is for us to deal with the elements in the Muslim community who understand they have to go to a reformation themselves. They have to solve the problem of their view of the kinds of things that uh, Charles describes of how they think about the Jewish community. If you find a Jew and he's hiding behind a tree, you must kill him? That's what, the, that's what they're teaching their children? That's the next generation they have to deal with in the Muslim community? It is their responsibility to seek out the solution of, of how they look at the rest of the, the rest of the world. And I think that's the way we attack the problem. Thank you uh, very much for inviting me. Uh, I enjoyed the presentations very much, and I just have a comment or question. As I was uh, waiting to clear security, coming on, for, walking up First Avenue, along the fence is a huge banner uh, that says, International Year of Solidarity 2014 with the Palestinian people. And at first I thought, uh, it was an unofficial uh, poster because I didn't see a logo on it. And now let me backtrack and just, re and just let me introduce myself. My name is Robert Seedy. Uh, I'm an attorney, uh, immigration lawyer, founder of the IsraelAdvocacyCalendar.com. So I, 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 I see the banner, which I, I repeat myself, and... Uh, a year of solidarity with the Palestinian people, and it's Yom HaShoah, which is always a day, Charles, uh, I'm sure you and everyone else knows, it, that fills me with dread, despair, and hopelessness. So when I see the banner, which really, uh, and you go into the website, 
you see that there's a, a political angle to this that is not to do with religion. It has nothing to do with Islam in a way. It really doesn't, let's face it. And this entire uh, international body has, devote, has dedicated this year to, uh, well, the end of the Jewish state, in a sense. You know, they don't call it for peace and reconciliation. No. So what are they talking about? The 170,000 people killed in Syria, it's not on the fence. The greatest journalist in Pakistan was murdered over the weekend, it's not on the fence. All the thousands of Christians massacred in Nigeria. I'm an immigration lawyer, so I do a lot of asylum cases. It's not on the fence. So what, what are we supposed to make of this? And just in, in a second thing, Mr. Uh, Sammy Appel, uh, you mentioned that your immigrants are coming with uh, the elders of Zion. So now, uh, again, I speak as an immigration lawyer. So are we supposed to um, re-educate our immigrants as they're pouring into America without stop? I'm not saying we could to stop them. It, uh, I do it for a living. I'm not saying it, it could be stopped. It's a phenomenon. The Wright brothers built the airplanes, and this is the future of the world. Giant movements of population. It's never, it's never going to stop. What do we do? Do we teach them... No, the Jews are not the sons of pigs and apes. Do we have to have classes on it to get your immigrant visa? So on that note, uh, I, uh, uh, I, th I thank you again. I want to just comment about what you're saying and to give you a little hope before we wrap it up because we, we are coming to the, we're actually over time and I appreciate you all staying so long. But as I stated before, we started the organization Proclaiming Justice to the Nations to reach Christians. And yes, we're preaching to the choir, but only because the choir doesn't know these truths that we've spoken about, doesn't know the Bible references, and so is, it, is therefore indifferent. There was a recent poll that came out yesterday, someone sent to me, where they said the rise of anti-Semitism is coming out of two specific groups and they're seeing a decline in another group. The two groups that they're seeing the anti-Semitism rise in are in the Muslim and the white supremacist movement. It's making a comeback. The, the decline is in the Christian community. I believe it is a direct result of all the education that organizations like PJTN are doing. We're targeting a specific audience because Christians make up the largest number of people on the planet. We use media in order to bring that message to them. We hear from Christians all over the world when they see our films, say this, reiterate some of the same concerns and talk about the same things that we heard here in this room. Agoji and I are working at the United Nations. It was a match made in heaven for God to bring us together because we understand, and Agoji understands, when she hosted that meeting with the Muslim women about the Arab Spring, we were able to talk with Muslim women who agree with us as Jewish and Christian women. And I believe targeting and, and reaching out to women is key because women have the most influence in every family structure. They, they impact their fathers, their husbands, their sons, their nephews. 
And, if, and as we said, as Igoji invited me to sit on the panel of this one meeting with these women and we had these conversations, it was incredible to hear them communicate the same thing that we as women here in the United States communicate. With regards to our country and, and educating them, our children are being indoctrinated. I'm talking specifically the United States with a different American viewpoint. It's not like the one that we all grew up with. We don't have immigrants come into the country and we don't help them learn the language and then teach them the wonderful things about America. People still want to come and live and be free in this country. So I hope that you will be encouraged to know that as we work through the halls of this body, as we continue to reach out to the, the largest number of NGOs are Christians. The NGOs are the hands and feet to the Secretary General to help him get his work done. And as we continue to speak out in these meetings at the United Nations, we are adding more and more people to this viewpoint. But it takes time. And we don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be here. But we are finding ways to communicate this message and find like-minded people. When I spoke out in one meeting about poverty, one of the, there were several people who came up to me afterwards, Agoji was one of them, and they, and they said, thank you so much for what you said. Because I was saying to them, you know, saying to the Secretary General, eradicating poverty is great, but you know what? What about human rights issues? What about Christians and Jews who are be, being slaughtered in their beds? First, we have to provide the, the, hum, hum, the rights for individuals to be alive before we can eradicate the issue of poverty because it's the government leaders that are actually holding on to the water, the food, the resources for their people. So when these people came up to me and said, thank you for saying what you said, and I said, doesn't anybody else talk that way? Well, of course, Agoji does. But it's slowly, slowly. And we have to bring the message. That's why we target the Christian community, the people of faith, because it's the people of faith who get it that are going to be like us, who are going to do something about it. And if we can get more people of faith to respond and be engaged and be involved, then we can make a difference. Then we can multiply our numbers. Listen, uh, Laurie said something about uh, the, the textbooks. That is so incredible what's going on with that. See, you have the enemy. I was talking about Latin America, okay? But in here in the United States, you have the enemy within. And you have to also fight it in here. Uh, Pearson, which is a British company, bought Prentice Hall. Prentice Hall, I don't know, many of you actually went to school with Prentice Hall books. Yes, we did. Okay, so it's, uh, it, it, they're everywhere. They, they print right now yes. 30 to 40% of the books or the textbooks in the, in the United States. They are owned by this British company. When this British company went into trouble, who bailed them out? The Saudis. Now, there's a connection there. I mean, this is not for, this is not for free. Okay, when, when, when somebody puts hundreds of millions of dollars into something, to, to bail a company out, they're going to ask for a favor somewhere else. And this was a, a test that was done in Tennessee to see how the people reacted. And the people reacted, like Glory said, very forceful. I mean, if you let down your guard, you will be in trouble right here.
I just wanted to get back to the question of moral issues that were brought up on uh, a few moments ago on a morality issue. You know, I, I think it is once you take the, uh, the, the image of God out of humanity, you got problems. I mean, it, this all doesn't, none of this is happening in a vacuum. You have a morality issue in human trafficking. You have a dehumanization of women uh, that we have been seeing in parts of the, the, in India where the rape cases were outrageous. We, you have a dehumanization in um, the, the immigration issues where people are you know, coming in illegally and they're going through all sorts of terrible things, shooting people at the border, really? You know, murder is wrong. That's it. It's it. And once you begin to attack life in any of its stages, you attacked it in all of its stages. And so, yes, I think it's a moral issue, and I think it's a very big human issue here. Um, and it's a dehumanization issue. And yes, I agree that the religious community has to say something about this, because they are they, they see God in humanity, but also the other issue came up with Mr. Asher Small with the idea of relevance, uh, relevant relativism, where nothing is absolute and everything you know has, and I think this is what there was a great discussion on with the uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth on his uh, on the, the philosophical concepts of where we are in in this particular time frame, and it also comes to the fact of yes, dialogue is important, but dialogue does not necessarily mean that we lose our identity in that dialogue, but that we respect the identity of each other. You know, it's not a relativism; it's a, a fact of saying this is how we perceive truth. And can those can that speak? Can we speak to each other in that situation? But I think it is a very big moral issue because it involves human life. I'm going to be. I'll, I'll be less than two minutes. Um, I just want to respond uh, very quickly to your comment, Mr. Sidi, on uh, whether you should educate immigrants. And I think 100% you should. And I remind, I'm reminded of Martin Luther King when the Civil Rights Act was adopted finally. In the United States, he said that the laws may not change the hearts of the racists, but at least it makes their actions illegal. That they may not love me, but they can't lynch me, was his quote. And if we can educate people that this horrific forms of anti-Semitism, which they've been socialized into, is not acceptable in this country, and our political leaders in this country speak loud and clear and have domestic and foreign policy that is consistent with fighting anti-Semitism, I think it's an imperative. And, and the voices for coming from this country resonates internationally and has a, a big footprint. And when leaders from this country equate, even indirectly, apartheid in Israel, it's a, it's a serious issue. On a positive note, I'll end on a positive note, because this is Yom HaShoah, but there is hope. Uh, ISGAP, our organization, runs academic programming at six universities in North America, and we opened a center in Rome. And I have to say that the, the atmosphere among scholars and even in the Vatican, I say even in the Vatican because I'm, I'm a skeptic, but even in the Vatican has been a 
it's a breath of fresh air that the atmosphere in Rome, in the Academy and in the Vatican is much more open and they take these issues much more seriously than the finest Ivy League universities in this country. And it's, there's a very, something very positive is happening there. And I've heard over and over from scholars and religious leaders that the problems of the Jews are our problems in Italy. And on a very quick note, Israel is here. Israel is a strong, vibrant democracy. It is the leading country, if I may say this in these halls, is democracy. It's at the, it's at the cusp of scientific innovation globally. It has a strong civic society. It has a strong media, has an amazing university system. Talking about biblical prophecy, there are Jews coming from the Ukraine, from Ethiopia, from the Americas. It's a vibrant, exciting, healthy, wonderful place to be. And, we, you know, the, the catastrophe of the past we should remember, but it's also where we are today. It has a very strong army. We will protect ourselves, and we're here. I'd like to make a few points before we conclude. First and foremost, I'd like to thank the Ambassador of Palau to the United Nations. I, for one, believe that the experience of the Jewish community can play a vital role in marshalling governments and civil society to combat anti-Semitism and all forms of hatred. My vision is for an inclusive and democratic world where people can enjoy their full potential. If I may quote from a former general speaking a few years ago, 100 years ago, I quote, ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we do about peace, more about killing than we do about living. We have grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon of the Mount. Thank you very much for attending. Can I just say, can I just say a couple words also before you leave? We have materials over here if you are interested in our documentary film, Forgotten People, Christianity and the Holocaust. We have it in Spanish if you would like it. And for our leaders that are with us today, I do want to agree with Agoji. Thank you so much, um, Ambassador Otto. Thank you so much for hosting this. I guess our next steps would be to consider introducing proclamations and or legislation from your countries in order to address this issue and condemn the protocols of the elders of Zion elders of Zion. And I also just want to thank you all for, for coming, for taking the time to be here. There's more information, like I said, to the right. Um, we'd be happy to provide that for you. God bless you all, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you.